Small Jobs. I am your host, Paul Nguyen. Uh, thanks for tuning in again. Uh, as a quick reminder, make sure that you do subscribe uh, wherever you get good podcasts. Please rate and review us five stars. The more you rate and review, the more people find us and the more people discover these amazing stories and these amazing people that I just happen to know and happen to run into, which is always a lovely coincidence. Uh, make sure you check out our website as well, nosmalljobspod.com.au, where we have reflections and insights and I post up my thoughts which is all very weird and personal but hey if you want to get to know me that's the way to do it uh, also follow us on Twitter Facebook and Instagram at no small jobs pod uh, for pictures and updates and various other bonus content and hey if you want to communicate to me directly tell me what I'm doing wrong or what I'm doing well that's uh, that's the way to do it uh, so today my guest is Justine. Justine is a registered nurse with a very interesting uh, career history. Hi Justine. Hi there. Thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. So uh, we had a bit of a pre-podcast chat and there's a lot to get through but I think we decided that chronologically was the best way to go. So let's start let's start even a little bit further back than, than, um, than university. What inspired you to become a nurse? You know, I've been thinking about that over the last couple of days um, and something that came to mind is when I was recently moving I came across some old pictures and there were actually pictures taken of me in kindergarten dressed up as a nurse <laughs> and I've always had this or always been drawn to helping people and I was always the one in the family that whenever anyone was sick that people would ask me for help so I was always kind of drawn to healthcare and helping people out and anatomy and physiology always intrigued me um, I played also I played a lot of sport competitively in my teenage years and spent a lot of time at the doctors with sports injuries and um, the physiotherapists getting treatment so I was always working um, or exposed to the healthcare industry in mm. some way, shape or form. Um, and then when I finished high school um, and was trying to decide what to do with my life, um, I had a long talk to the family doctor and, and he suggested getting into nursing and it intrigued me. I thought it was an interesting career choice also because it would enable me to travel and travel was always something that I wanted to do a lot of throughout my life because I'd always travelled around Australia when I was young, and nursing would let me travel overseas as well. It's fascinating because you're actually the second person on who has, who as part of their origin story, as it were, they consulted their family doctor um, about for career advice. The other one was a dentist. That's Mark. Check out our previous episodes. Um, Mark, who who did was inspired to be a doctor originally, but then his uh, his GP told him not to do it because of all the hours and the intense work. And that's mm-hmm. how we that's how we switched over to dentistry. That's fascinating. Why why the family doctor? Um. Our family, well, when I say he was our family doctor, like he saw everybody. And um, we had, when I was growing up and in my, especially in my later teenage years, I had a few health issues and was spending quite a bit of time at the doctor, obviously getting those treated. So he got to know me quite well. Mm. And, um, you know, we had a lot of conversations. And over the course of that, he said, you know, I think this would be a really good career choice for you because you've always kind of expressed interest in healthcare, in some way, shape, or form. I mean, at one point, I think I wanted to do physiotherapy, 
Mm. Um, but I was very unwell in my final year of high school and had to take some time off and was hospitalized and blah, blah, blah for um, meningitis. Oh, God. And um, <laughs> <laughs> Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> meningitis, I think, is a bit of an understatement. Yeah, so, yeah, so that wasn't the... Yeah, it wasn't a fun time at all, to be honest. But, you know, managed to get through high school um, and uh, and was able to get into university to do nursing. And it ended up being a great career choice for me because mm-hmm. it has enabled me to do exactly what I wanted to do and enabled me to travel. And I've managed to nurse in a number of countries and... Um, it's also, you know, and through my work, it's enabled me to meet an amazing um, number of people and hold some great job roles and um, develop, you know, nursing skills, um, management skills. And, you know, both. it's enabled me to, you know, develop both personally and professionally. Which is a beautiful summary because this is the thing we'd, I'd like to talk about in more detail and obviously is the point of this podcast. So, let's let's um, let's skip over university because obviously the system, uh, for people who are aspiring nurses, the system would be quite different now, I imagine. The, the, well, the, I was lucky. I was one of the f- very uh, – back in the days when nursing just went to universities. Mm. So, I was a college-trained nurse rather than a hospital-trained oh, nurse. Oh, I see. So, I, was, I managed to get in during the transition – so to speak. So yeah, I was uh, I was actually a college trained nurse. Right. Yeah. So what was your first job out of university? My first job out of university was um, working in the public health sector. I worked at St Vincent's Public, mm-hmm. and I got into the graduate nurse program there. So I did my first year at a university at St Vincent's Public. Right. And how did yeah. you find that? Well, it was good. It was it was really good. It was a great. Um, learning opportunity because with the program that they put you in a variety of um, different settings. So, you know, I, I worked in a surgical setting. Actually, I did two surgical rotations, but I did a general surgical rotation and I did a neuro rotation and I did a rehab rotation. Um, so they moved you around so you could get an idea of what you were interested in. Um, and I always really enjoyed surgical nursing. I liked, you know, patients coming in, spend a few days with them, get them you know, have their operation, get them sorted, get them out of there, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah. Um, so that that enabled me to get um, a good idea of where I wanted to go, which is, and I stayed in surgical nursing for a few years after that as well. Okay. Yeah. And then um, from there, I decided that it was time to travel. Right. Well, obviously, as you said, early aspiration was always about travel. So mm-hmm. where was your first destination? Um, so what I ended up doing is I... Back in the t- at that time, that was when there was a lot of British nurses coming to Australia, traveling mm. around Australia, mm-hmm. and so there were no British nurses in the UK. <laughs> so they'd set up this program where they were inviting Australian nurses to come over to work in the UK. Mm. So I did over went over and did a contract working in the NHS. Um, I was working in London. At uh, Queen Mary's Hospital in Roehampton, which I now believe is no longer there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did uh, a contract there. Once I finished my contract, I stayed on a little bit longer, but they moved me into a management role. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was uh, bed man- I was what they called the bed manager for three hospitals in the NHS. 
and that was back in the time when it was like one of the coldest winters on record and <laughs> and uh, they you know they'd always prided themselves that they you know never had anyone staying more than like six hours in the emergency department well but in my first week there we had a cold snap and all these little old ladies kept walking outside and slipping on black ice. Oh, no. So we had fractured knoffs up the hallway like you would not oh. believe. So that was a challenge. Sorry, for um, for those non-medical people out there, a knoff is a neck of femur. So that's basically breaking your hip. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I imagine that would be quite terrible. Yeah, it was, it was stressful. And mm. um, I must admit, that's when I learned I used to go to work when it was dark. And I went home when it was dark and I didn't see the light of day for several months going through a, a British winter. Indeed. And that's when I learned or started drinking coffee <laughs> and developed my love affair with coffee. Mm, you have to. That has continued to this day. <laughs> yes. Mm. Yeah. So how did you find working in the NHS? Obviously, these days, the reputation is not so great. Uh, it was a challenge, you know, because um, in between working at St. Vincent's, I spent a couple of years working in the private sector here before I went to the UK. Right. So I, I was working at the Epworth mm-hmm. in, um, well, in a satellite uh, unit away from their Richmond campus. We were in the Mercy Hospital for Women and I worked there for a couple of years. So I went from working in the public sector here to the private sector where they look after you probably well, back in those days, quite well. Mm. Um, and then I went back to working in the public sector in the UK. And that was different. Um, <laughs> you know, that was where you had, you know, your Florence Nightingale Awards where, you know, you had big long rooms full of beds mm. as opposed to going in the in the private sector here where you've only really got single rooms and double rooms for your patients. Mm. So it was a challenge. And, you know, then weren't as well as equipped as what the private sector was and and the system's a little different and uh it i got a bit burnt out from working from nursing in the nhs it it was a bit of a tough haul but but i mean uh, with uh, again these sort of topics come up a lot uh, with other guests but would you would you consider bed managing to be an innate skill of nursing or was it sort of a new skill that you had to learn but utilizing your nursing knowledge yes it was a new skill that i had to learn because there was a lot of organization and you had to do a lot of admin work and that was when i had to start doing uh, working on a computer you you've got to remember this is like heading back 25, 26 years ago, mm. and um, I'd never used a computer. <laughs> I, when I was nursing in Australia, we were still using, you know, paper. They're still doing that now. Like, <laughs> like e-records are still, are still something that's they're slowly rolling out well, as we speak. They, they, were, they were something in the distant future when I was nursing in Australia last time. So um, I had to learn how to use a computer, which I had never done. And, um, you know, it was going to all these management meetings and sitting down and and prioritising who should get beds and who shouldn't and dealing with surgeons who felt that they solely had the right to decide what patients should get in the hospital and all the tricks of the trade that they would employ to get their patients in the door Mm. rather than, you know especially if we're dealing with elective admissions, Mm. um, rather than, you know, having a little faith in the system and, you know, we would have to prioritise patients. They would put every trick in the book to get their patients in the door. 
um, before anyone else's patience. So it was learning skills in how to deal with um, uh, uh, doctors. Uh, and by that you mean egos? Yeah, I was, I was trying to be quite subtle. I was trying to be a bit discreet there and um, it's, subtle. It's okay. There, there are a lot of doctors out there with egos. We know who they are. It's fine. Um, yeah, so exactly. Dealing with doctors' egos, dealing with um, hospital management, which can, um, you know, it's a skill to learn how to deal with these people because management um, don't always, well, as well as looking at the patient's best interests, it's a business. And they have to run a business. So, you know, it's dealing with people who, whereas you're focused on the patient, they may not be solely focused on the patient mm. and the patient's needs. So it was dealing with that um, and uh, report writing and uh, forward planning. And so there was a lot of new skills involved in doing the bed management. But my nursing skills also came into the fore because I... Well, you know, they had to trust my judgment and I had to assess patients who were coming in for elective admissions and who should have priority. Mm. Yes. Okay. So, as you said, the, the, you got a bit burnt out. So, what did you do next? Then I decided to go outside the box. Mm. Um, whilst I was working in the UK, I'd taken... Um, oh, years before I had... Uh, after my graduate program, I took a year off and I travelled around the world. Um and then I went back to Australia and was working in the private sector before I went to the UK. So friends of mine who I'd met in the UK had wanted to go to Egypt. And they said, because uh, I'd been before, and they said, oh, well, can you come with us? Because you've got a bit more experience in the country. And I said, oh, okay, um, I'll go to Egypt for four weeks if we can go to Prague for four days on mm-hmm. the way back. That was the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they dropped a bomb and said, but we have to do an organised tour, whereas I'd backpacked before. Mm. I was a backpacker from, you know, just put the back o- the pack on and take off and just see where you ended up. That mm. was me. And they were very nervous about doing that. So they convinced me to go on a, an organised tour, which kind of horrified me actually, but <laughs> I did it. And... Um, and Really enjoyed it, uh, so much so that when we got back to the UK, I decided that I needed a break from nursing. So I applied to the company that we had travelled with to Egypt and uh, got a job working as a tour leader and got flown out to Egypt mm-hmm. um, after, you know, a very brief training session. And I was working as a tour leader in Egypt, Israel and Jordan. Wow. Um, which was uh, really interesting. In what um, way? Well, Egypt is, you know, a fascinating country. Um, so I lived out of a bag. And so for nine months, I just travelled around the country taking people on holiday. Uh, this was also around the time of the second intifada uh, in Israel. I'm, I'm, I'm going to plead some ignorance here. What is that? <laughs> Um, the Intifada was when there was a lot of unrest that broke out uh, mm. during, um, this would have been, oh God, no, I'm trying to think when it was. This was in 96, 97. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of unrest between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Right. And, um, and you sort of always read about these things and because it's so far away, it's, you, you don't really have any connection yeah, absolutely. with it. And I was in uh, on, <laughs> I was in uh, Jerusalem one evening, 
and I was staying there for a couple of days in between tours. So rather than send me all the way back to Cairo, which was our base, they said I'll just stay in Jerusalem for a couple of days and hang out. And and there were other tour leaders coming through with other groups from the company that I worked in. Anyway, we are just walking down uh, um, Jaffa Street, which is one of the main streets mm-hmm. in uh, Jerusalem. And then suddenly, you know, we had the riot squad running down the street and there's tear gas and um, there's sirens and everything is just going crazy. And my friend who had another group said, oh, look, I'm going to take my clients, you know, her group that Mm. she was uh, leading. She says, I'm going to take them down here because it's safer. And I said, oh, okay, well, I'll go down here and check out what's going on. And I'm sort of running down the street towards the action thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> like, this is just not logical. <laughs> and I just thought, well, this is my life. Okay, well, let's just see what happens. So, Jeez. yeah, so found myself um, uh, in the middle of uh, a bit of a riot oh in, uh, in Jerusalem. And, uh, and that was also around the time there was a lot of unrest in Egypt when there was the shooting at the Temple of Hatshepsut mm-hmm. where um, – some uh, Bedouins came in from the desert and opened with automatic gunfire at the temple in mm. Luxor. And um, uh, goodness, I think from memory, I can't exactly remember the number, but there was uh, a large number of people were, were killed in that attack at the temple of Hatshepsut, um, which started to sort of see a bit of a decline in the tourism industry for a little while in Egypt. Of course. Um so I did that job until, yeah, I spent about nine months doing tour leading. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. But living out of a bag constantly mm. um, gets a wee bit tiring. Yeah, fair enough. But I wasn't ready to leave Egypt. Um, so I did come home for a couple of months when uh, in between my contract and uh, and did uh, a CELTA course where I learned how to teach English as a second language. Oh. which was a school that I could take back to Egypt with me because I still wasn't ready to get back into healthcare. Mm. So I went back to Egypt and I was teaching English um, in American language school, uh, which <laughs> I don't think I was the world's best teacher. I was, I was sitting there one day and I was getting all my students to repeat what I was saying, you know, it was just an exercise and... As I said, it was an American language school, but I realised that all my students had wicked Australian accents (laughs) and um, that they probably, they'd come there to sort of learn how to speak American English as opposed to (laughs) my Australian English. Um, So my teaching career was a little short-lived because at that point in time I was ready to get back into healthcare. Mm. And I was, um, I'd heard about a hospital that was opening, an eye hospital, uh, that was opening in one of the suburbs in Cairo. And um, I sort of tracked down the owners and told them that I was the right person for the job. So I got that job. So I was working as a director of nursing in a new hospital in Cairo and I set up uh, the nursing department there. Wow. And I worked there for about nine to 12 months mm-hmm. and um, and was having a a little how would I say, a bit of a conflict with management because I envisioned a different role for nurses and nurses in Egypt, um, uh, their system of nursing is different than what we have here. In what way? Um, Well, in Egypt, uh, sorry, in Australia, 
um, when, when I went through, you know, we were trained and, and we were responsible for total patient care. So we were allocated patients and um, we, you know, looked after their, you know, let's say their hygiene needs and, their, you know, we looked after their medications and, and we did their dressings. We, we dealt with everything for the patient. So it was what you call total patient care. Mm-hmm. And we worked with the doctors as part of a healthcare team to <laughs> develop treatment plans for patients. Mm. Nursing in Egypt is different. It's very task-oriented. Um, doctors typically don't take the nursing, uh, include nurses too much in the decision-making process, um, despite the fact that nurses spend more time with the patients than anybody. Absolutely. So um, I, f- I was a little frustrated with that direction. So I left that hospital and was uh, was only out of work for a couple of weeks and then got recruited by another hospital huh. um, where I worked as um, a, the deputy director of nursing actually in charge of education. So I developed um, like a clinical education program for the nurses in in that hospital and it was a very large a renowned hospital in Cairo called the Asalam International Hospital. So they had over 300 beds and um, it was undergoing a lot of changes at that time. Um, it originally had been opened in the early 80s and run by the British and then um, the Egyptian staff at that time said, well, we don't need you anymore. So they got rid of the British and took over and then all the systems that were in place sort of slowly decayed and declined <laughs> and the standard of care did the same so they did it was the hospital had been bought out by an extremely wealthy Egyptian um, who had wanted to make changes so one of the things he did is hired me and uh, a couple of other foreign nurses and uh, we worked to raise the standards and particularly in nursing care in that hospital so I worked there for three and a half years um, and enjoyed it, but you know, had felt that I'd sort of run my course there, and uh, and was looking for something else to do. Where I, when I was headhunted by a large multinational oil company, who um, was established in Egypt, and they asked me if I would come on and uh, look after their expatriate staff that they had in country. Um, and at that point in time, it was just like a small. Um, well, it was a very small family-orientated company in Egypt. I mean, like I said, it was a multinational company. Yeah. But the the section in Egypt, um, the company that was working in the region was a lot smaller. There was about 35 families and I worked with them. And over the years, they built it up until we had about, at, at its peak, we had about 90 expatriate families there and some 400 Egyptian nationals working there. And I I didn't deal with the nationals for like nursing and healthcare, just the expatriates, but I developed a wellness program that catered to some 400 staff um, as a part of the an, an initiative that was um, started in the head office in Houston. So I ended up working for that company for 16 years. Right. And um, I worked for them 24-7 with one weekend off a month for 16 years. Oh, wow. So at the end of that, I was, again, pretty pretty exhausted. Fair enough. I yeah. mean, b- before we move away from that, because obviously this, this is quite interesting to me. So, I mean, uh, 
looking looking at obviously my first question I guess is why why Egypt? Obviously you you, you stuck around for quite a while there. Yeah, well, you know, when I first started there I thought I I'll just be here for a year or two and I'll move on. <laughs> but um if you speak to people that have lived in Egypt for quite some time, they will tell you that you, you either love it or you hate it. Mm-hmm. And they say that if you drink the water from the Nile, you will never truly leave. <laughs> and I think I got dunked very early on. So <laughs> I don't know. I just always had an affinity with Egypt. Um, it had always fascinated me as, as a child. You know, I'd probably, I, think, I know I went to an exhibition once when I was very, very young of Tutankhamun. When it was travelling around Australia, I think when I was about eight or ten or something. Um, but the country always just fascinated me. Mm. Uh, the culture is really interesting. The people are um, they're very family-oriented. Uh, they're very self-depreciating. They're funny. Um, and you, you do either love it or you hate it. But if you love it, it does get under your skin. And mm. for me, it is now one of my homes. And um, after 23 years, because that's how long I ended up staying there, um, it, it's, it's tough because I find myself Australian, but I also consider myself partly Egyptian. And I know that sounds a bit, I don't know, that might sound a little bit weird. No, not at um, all. But I've lived nearly half my life there. Well, yeah. So, so of course, you, you're going to identify with, with both places. And obviously, for different reasons, mm-hmm. I imagine. You know, you get different things out of Australia or different things from Australia, different things from Egypt. Absolutely. Like, I live in e- when I'm living in Egypt and there is a lot that I miss from about Australia, mm. a lot. And then I'm here and then there's a lot that I miss about living in Egypt. Tell and, us more about that. Um, well, it actually really hit home last night actually I was seeing a play um, in Melbourne and um, as one of the scenes in the play it was um, a play about some Palestinians actually and um, in the play there was the call to prayer mm. now um, I haven't heard the call to prayer since I arrived. I've been back in Australia now for three months and I haven't heard the call to prayer in three months and I just got a pain. I mean, I know it's weird, but I just physically jolted in the in the seat because I suddenly became aware of how much I'd missed it. Mm. Now I'm not Muslim. My husband is Muslim, mm-hmm. um, uh, and he is a practicing Muslim. But um, for me, the call to prayer. Um, apart from a way of being able to tell the time because the call to prayer comes five times a day, so I always have a rough idea of what the time is mm-hmm. when I hear the call, um, I find it actually incredibly comforting. Mm-hmm. If you have, um, uh, like if the imam who is doing the call to prayer has a nice voice, it's very melodic and it's very comforting you know, it's something that it's always been in the background for 23 years and then suddenly not having it, I realised how much I've actually missed it. Mm. Um, and, uh, and it, yeah, it just kind of brought things back because um, it was just a part of my daily life. Yeah, and imagine you know it's, it's a sensory trigger. It's like when you when you taste something from your childhood and you suddenly have memories of being a kid. I imagine again, considering you spent twenty three years of your life in this place and you built a home and, mm-hmm. and had a family and and had a career and a whole life there. Of mm-hmm. course, it's going to 
um, elicit some feelings and memories. And, oh, and absolutely. And you know, as you've only been back in Australia for three months, that's not that long. Like not at all. It, it's it's essentially you're you're homesick. That's that's pretty reasonable to yep. feel. Actually, that's that's true. I am. I I do get homesick, and it's uh, and there's just little things that bring it back. I was. <laughs> eating some baba ganoush dip the other day and um and again the taste just brings back so many memories i know mm. it sounds a bit corny i suppose no, but no. it just brings back so many memories um and little things that i do here and and um and in setting up our home here um to remind us of our home there because um as i said it's where i met my husband and i've spent a lot of time and and uh, and my way of life here, it's still taking a lot of adjusting to because it's very different than mm. my lifestyle. My lifestyle here is very different. Well, that's what we were talking about. So, so what what do you feel are, are like the key distinctions? And I guess as sort of a follow up question to that, what are the things you want to try and retain uh, from about your lifestyle in Egypt that you want to bring back to Australia? Um, some of the main differences that have really become apparent to me. I mean, I always kind of knew, but coming back, some of the main differences, uh, the work ethic is very different. And um, take note that I'm generalising when I'm speaking about this, but, you know, since I've been back and I've started work back in Australia and I'm working as a part of a team and I'm really enjoying it and I work with a group of people who, you know, take great pride in their work and are really hardworking and take responsibility for their work and the the jobs and the tasks allocated to them. And they take great pride in doing their their, their job well. Um, in Egypt, I found it really difficult sometimes because I was working with people who didn't take the same pride in their work and um, they don't take responsibility for... Um, their their job or doing things or in the sense that if that there's a problem or they make a mistake, they they don't take responsibility. They'll deny that it ever happened. Or if they – let, let's say, for example, you give a project to someone to do and I always used to say to them, okay, you know, feedback to me on a regular basis. Let me know how that you're going. Um, if you've got any problems, let me know. Do not wait until the day before it's due in to tell me it's not done. All right. Mm-hmm. If you've got some, if you've got an issue, let me know. Yeah. Time and time again, it, that would happen because mm-hmm. they don't want to ever tell you no. It's culturally Egyptians don't like to tell you no. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they had a problem and they didn't do the job, they wouldn't tell you, and then they would deny that they couldn't do it or they had a problem. Because in Egypt, apart from the fact that salaries in general are very low, um, people, uh, management, uh, if there's a problem or somebody does something wrong, their first reaction is not to sit down with the person and figure out what the problem is and what they can do about it or to resolve it or to discuss it so people can learn from their mistakes. Their first response is to dock their salary. Mm. Now, salary is already being low. Yeah. If your salary is docked, it's really hard. Cost of living's got a lot higher in Egypt since the revolution, yeah. um, particularly since the second revolution. 
And uh, so people just never admit that they've got a problem or they haven't done it. Which I guess is obviously something that's been essentially they've been trained into because, of course, if you knew that the most likely consequence of admitting fault, regardless of whether or not it was a, an avoidable fault, um, yeah, the first thing you would do would be to deny. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I could understand where they were coming from, yeah. but coming from a culture that doesn't typically work mm. like that and holding a position where... I always took the the view that, well, the buck stops with me. Mm. So if this person hasn't done it, well, that's my fault also. You know, so I they're working for me. Mm. And so I was always trying to get people to, you know, just tell me, you know, work with me. Don't leave things to the last minute. Try to train or teach them how to plan their time, you know, so they would take – and. And show them that there's benefits to doing their jobs well. Um, a lot of people feel in Egypt that every time they do something, that instead of just taking pride in doing a job well done, their expectation is is that they should be financially rewarded for that. Hmm. So, um, like here, here in Australia, for example, you go to a restaurant. Um, if it's exceptional service, you may tip somebody. Mm. All right. You don't, it's not expected that you have to, mm. right? In Egypt, that's just expected. And if you don't tip someone, like if the waiter does a really lousy job of serving you and you don't tip, they just don't get that. They think it's just a given <laughs> that if they've turned up at your table, they deserve a tip. And I guess uh, as part of that, uh, as I said, is work ethic, but I think there is a level of expectation that, that is, which is where the difference sort of comes. You know, it's the idea that um, what, is, what is the minimum required amount of effort? And if their feeling is that the minimum is just to be present, mm-hmm. then of course they would expect that that is all that is necessary of them. And mm-hmm. um, I guess I wonder, I wonder why that's the case. I wonder why that's the expectation that's set. I don't know. I mean, Egypt is always, well, for many, many years since, oh God, I don't really want to get political, but since <laughs> since Mubarak came in and it became a very autocratic society and, and you know, generations have gone through without having an opportunity to express themselves or have a voice, um, people have become feeling quite downtrodden mm. and and they feel that, you know, this is the life they lead. Um you know, there's no opportunities for them. How they got to the point where they just think backsheesh or tipping is expected, I don't know. That was before my time. Mm. But it is just a cultural, it's an expectation, mm. you know. And if you dock their salary, like if you if you don't tip them, like let me give you an example. I was doing, when I was working for the company, I was doing um, the annual bonuses, Mm-hmm. And you could give a bonus up to 25%, I think, of their salary, like mm-hmm. their total salary. Um, and I had a person working for me who I felt hadn't um, performed to her potential. Mm-hmm. So I didn't give her her full bonus because I didn't feel she deserved it. Yeah, because the point um, of a bonus is that it's meant to be a positive incentive yeah, to exactly. or a reward for good yeah, work. Not, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And there had been numerous times over the years, uh, over the year, where I'd had to call her in and have a conversation with her, whether it be about you know her 
being on the phone or her lack of organization or failure to hit deadlines or, or whatever. And so I decided that I wasn't going to give her her whole bonus. Mm. Well, you thought the sky had fallen in <laughs> because it was her expectation that I knew that she was renovating her house and that she needed the money and that I should have given it to her. Mm. Nothing about her failure to perform yeah. that didn't, as far as she was concerned, that wasn't even a factor. The fact, the point was that money was available and all I had to do was give it to her. But I had chosen not to. So it was my fault. And how did you manage the, how did you manage the cultural difference? I mean, that, that's essentially what we're talking about here is cultural, obviously, on a personal level, but we're veered towards the um, uh, sort of occupational kind of level. Because you, as, as you mentioned, you know, the... This, the the expectation of nurses in Egypt is vastly different uh, in terms of their involvement. But you would obviously come into these various management and um, almost like uh, originating kind of jobs. Like you sort of created all these things on your own. Well, not your own, but you created all these these systems and education tools and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, how did how did you marry that? How did you were you were you asked to bring in value like sort of. I don't like. I don't want to use the word Western, but Western values, or what? Do they want you to conform? Um, they wanted my. They wanted the value of my Western education. If we're talking in the from the nursing perspective, they wanted the value of my Western education, mm. um, and because they recognised that overall the standards that I would perform to were higher than what was in Egypt and they were trying to raise the standards of nursing care um, in hospitals in Egypt and particularly in the one that I worked in. Um, so, yeah, the expectation was is that they wanted um, they wanted my knowledge. Um, it wasn't always the case. I mean, when I first went to this, public, this private hospital, um, I found it out. I found out later actually about this. Um, and then the situation evolved where they sort of t- put my skills to better use. But when I first got the job there, I did find out that they, one of the factors that they had wanted or that, that they thought about when they employed me was that they wanted the patients and the relatives to see a blonde Western woman walking around the hallways of the hospital <laughs> because that would make them look better because... <laughs> the especially the middle to upper class Egyptians who were inpatients mm. um, had more faith in the skills <laughs> of a Western nurse. So it put the hospital in a better eye. Oh, so I was actually encouraged because I'm like, you know, I've got work to do, you know, I've got the office, you know, I've got to go and do some work there. No, no, no. Certain number of hours a day, I, I was told I had to be walking around the hallways. <laughs> so I would be seen. And I knew I had to do it because the general manager had all the security video feeds in his office. Oh my so God. he, if I, he didn't see me, I would get a call saying, Justine, you've got to get out. You've got to walk around more. I feel like they, they, they would have been better off or it'd be easy for you just to put you on posters and just stick you around the hospital just to say, yes, we have a blonde nurse. Mm. Look, look mm. at our blonde nurse. Yeah, it didn't go too well. <laughs> down too well. I twigged. It didn't take me too long. I sort of twigged what was going on and just sort of said, you know, that's really not going to cut it. Mm. Um, and then we had a conversation and then they said, oh, okay, well, you, you do have some skills and and uh, and that we can put to good use. So that's when they sort of agreed that I would set up this education program 
and uh, and a few other initiatives in the hospital, um, which I did do. And then uh, I sort of had a bar of that and <laughs> decided to go and work somewhere else. It is interesting that you did end up um, incorporating teaching into your career. Because as I said, you know, you, you did the English language course and you, you had your experiences there. But in, in invariably, you you merged or utilized the skills that you had developed being a teacher because being a teacher is not something that's innate to everyone. It's a, it's a skill in and of it itself. It is a definite skill. And, you know, I <laughs> kudos to teachers because it's, you know, it is a really uh, difficult yet rewarding profession. And, you know, I have very good friends that are, that are teachers in Cairo and, you know, hats off to them. Um, I think what I found out is that while I did the teaching English as a second language course, the teaching skills, I didn't enjoy teaching English. Mm. That's what I found out. I actually, when I got back into the hospital, I quite enjoyed teaching nursing mm. and nursing skills. Um, and then I was actually better at that. Mm. And I felt... I think um, because, you know, I had just done a CELTA course. I wasn't a, you know, I hadn't, I didn't have a degree in nurse, in, in teaching. Yeah. Um, yeah, in education. But I had some teaching skills, but I got back to teaching a subject that I was passionate about and I knew more about. Mm. Despite being a, a native English speaker, um, English is a very challenging language to teach. Yes. Um, so, yeah, getting back into nursing, um, I found teaching nursing was a better fit. Yeah. Well, I, guess, I guess back to, um, back to the, so the idea of uh, work ethic and, and differing standards between cultures. I, 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 looking, looking at it from the outside, obviously you, you went through it. It seems to me part of the problem was that although you were brought in by management with the expectation that you would... Um, you bring in your expertise from working from your Western education. It it almost seems like no one told the nurses that. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. A lot of them were really keen to learn and there were quite a spectrum in regards to the quality of nurses in Egypt. As a, and as always is in any industry, mm, any mm. country, there's always going to be a variety of people who went into it for the wrong reasons or the wrong expectations. Mm. That's understandable. Um but I think they also, the way it's presented to them is like, for example, oh, look, here we go. We've got Justine and she's going to come in and tell you how to do it right, mm. right? Um, and you can't always go into a different culture. And I'm not just talking about plain nursing skills, um, you know, like taking a blood pressure or taking somebody's temperature or something like that. I mean, that that's a, a fairly standard skill. Yes. Um, but it's dealing with your patients mm. and how to work with your patients um, and planning your patient care. Now, that is very different. And they had it, they were presented, it was presented to them as, oh, here you go, here's Justine, she's going to teach you how to do nursing care plans the right way. Mm. And you can't necessarily put my culture, I, I would never say my way is the right way. Mm. It's just different. Yes. You know, my husband and I have this conversation all the time whenever we had, because uh, my husband is Egyptian, uh, we have like these cultural conversations and he'll go, oh, that's wrong. And I'm like, no, <laughs> my way is not wrong. Your way is not wrong. It's just different. And we have to figure out how we can meld them together or work them in such a way 
um, to the benefit, for example, if we're talking nursing, I can't just say that my Western way of doing things is the right way in your culture. Mm, that's right. It, it's just wrong. I mean, it's a it's a recipe for disaster. Mm. Um, but they were presented that Justine's going to come in and teach you the right way to do it. Mm. So I got a lot of uh, pushback. Of course you would. Early yeah. on until I sort of took the time to sit down and sort of say, okay, well, tell me how you do it, but tell me why you're doing it that mm. way. Why do you do this? Can we do this better? Would this work? No. Okay, let's try something else. And trying to develop um, ways of nursing, for example, if we're talking about nursing care plans, that benefit patients in a different culture. Mm. Um, and that took some time to overcome um, the suspicion and sort of uh, of the Egyptian nurses sure. um, and get them on board with my way of thinking. And so I, I wasn't just saying that their way was wrong. I was saying that it's different, but can we improve it? And how do we improve it? What, what works in your culture? How can I help you improve that? Um, how can we improve um, like the standards of, you know, these patients stay in hospital. What can we do differently? Because we're getting a lot of complaints. So the way it's being done now is not working. Yes. So what can we do to change that? And my way is not necessarily the right way mm. for this situation. Yeah. So that was really challenging. And that was a really big learning experience for me, um, learning how to work productively with people from different cultures. Because there's always the la- – and there's also the language of barrier in yeah. there. Um, whilst I speak a bit of Ang- you know Arabic, I'm hardly fluent. <laughs> um, and interestingly, a lot of them are trained in English, so they will understand but can't speak or oh. understand and not have the confidence to speak. Right. So that is also like most doctors will speak Arabic because a lot of them are trained in, you know, the training is in English. Mm. Um, you might not be able to have sort of general conversation con- you know, discussions with them because they don't have that vocab. Sure. But they'll have medical vocab. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of them you could talk to quite easily, but the nurses could be a little challenging. But it depended on what qualification they had because there was three different nursing qualifications mm-hmm. in Egypt. So if you had a higher institute nurse, which is like the a three-year degree course, mm-hmm. um, typically they would be able to speak English to some extent, yeah. But those nurses, they would get on, you know, they would get jobs in hospitals and because they were higher institute nurses, they were very quickly promoted to senior positions without necessarily getting enough experience. Mm. So, you know, they might be working on the job for like three years and suddenly they'll be a charge nurse, Mm. you know. So the standards of care, you know, they don't have the experience to deal with everything. I mean, three years. It's not a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, it seems to be an issue of perception there. Mm. The idea that if you have... I mean, let's face it, we have that in Western society as well. Whereas if you have a degree, you are automatically better. And don't get me wrong, education is important. I'm not I'm not devaluing education. But experience but yes. plays a lot. You know, like I, I met a charge nurse who worked... She was uh, the charge nurse of the ICU over there. Now, she wasn't a higher institute nurse. Mm. She was a diploma nurse. But yet she had some 30 years experience Mm. and she was a very, very knowledgeable, um, very experienced charge nurse Mm. and ran 
a great unit. Really did. So, yeah, I agree with you. While education is really important, experience plays a big part. Another really frustrating thing about the perceptions of nurses in Egypt is um, this is quite an interesting story because typically nurses in Egypt have a really poor reputation. Like you would never, really would you hear people say, oh, I want my daughter to be a nurse. And it sort of, because here in our our society, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, nurses are really respectable um, uh Profession. Profession yeah, to get into it. And mm. let's be honest, nurses and teachers are becoming quite revered. Yeah. And I'm sorry, you know. Still inadequately paid, but yes, revered nonetheless. Um, and, you know, let's be honest. I mean, you know, hospital uh, doctors and hospitals can't function without us. No. So, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great profession. And um, it took me a while to sort of understand because nobody ever really came out and explained to me why nursing was held in such poor regard and it was only after quite some time that somebody sat down with me and said that during the war um uh a lot of the nurses had were uh like recruit and i'm talking about like the second world war um that a lot of nurses had been taken and they had gone they were working in like the military hospitals and and things like that um so they weren't nurses in Cairo or in the main cities working in the hospitals. Oh. Um, so they had to recruit women to, to the, you know, um, fulfill the role of the nurses. And um, they really struggled to find people. So they ended up um, recruiting prostitutes. Oh, my God. <laughs> so a lot of prostitutes ended up becoming nurses sort of in... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can't do a vertical on a podcast. Sorry. I can't see <laughs> I'm that. sorry, I just realised that. Um, so yeah, a lot of prostitutes. They recruited a lot of prostitutes to become uh, like carers and nurses. So for years afterwards, even up until you know this generation, that that's why nursing has such a poor reputation in Egypt because this you know they track it back because it's all about. Your reputation, of course, in yeah. Egypt. You know, it's all about what the neighbors think, mm. um, and so because prostitution or prostitutes had been associated with the field of nursing, oh. that had carried over into subsequent generations. Wow! So that's why um, nursing, to you know, a great extent. It's evolving, it's changing as the standards of nursing and nursing education because a lot has been happening over the last sort of five to ten years in Cairo in regards to nursing education in that nursing schools in in Egypt are affiliating with international universities Mm. to raise the the standards of nursing education. Um, But up until recently, yes, that that reputation had stuck. That's fascinating. Mm, mm, Which, yeah. Um, so we, oh look, I, I love where this, with this conversation is going because I've been learning so much. Uh, but, but I guess we kind of veered away from, well, I want to I come back to the idea of home life. So as you said, there are, um, there are certain things that you, as it, you know, now that you're back in Australia, there's certain things you want to bring back to Australia in terms of the way of life was really important to you. What are the things that you, you wanted to bring back? Um, it, so the way things are here, like, for example, 
my day is very different here. Like this is the first time in a long time that I've worked where I, I'm doing like an eight to eight to five job. I haven't done that in God, I can't remember <laughs> um, because I've always been on call for so long. So going back to an eight to five job and then sort of finishing work and going home and like having dinner and everything shuts so early here, <laughs> you know, like it, it, I, I can't get used to it. It, you know, you've got to get to the supermarket by such and such a time. I think they shut by nine or something. Depends on where you are. Uh, there are ones that close at midnight. There's a 24 hour, there are 24 hour ones, but yeah. they're not common. Yes. So yeah. like, for example, you know, like, because I was on call and, and I didn't have um, structured work hours, you know, like I might work a few hours in the morning and have a break and then I go back to work or to the hospital, you know, with patients in the afternoon or evening or I could get called at any time. But um, – and my husband also worked irregular hours as well. So, you know, we would often not go out to do the shopping until nine, 10 o'clock at night, <laughs> you know, when we both got home. Um also, the other thing that's different is the work week is different here. Um, here we work Monday to Friday uh, with the Saturday-Sunday weekend. Sure. You know, I am still, because our work week was over there is Sunday to Thursday. Oh. And Friday-Saturday is the weekend. So I'm still, I cannot get over. I still call Sunday Monday. Oh. So I'll say to you, I'll see you on Sunday because I'm so used to Sunday being the first day of the work week. Yeah. Um, I'm, uh, and our, our Friday, you know, my days off are different and I know they'll be different when my husband gets here because, you know, Friday over there is like the holy day. Of course. That is the mm-hmm. day where, because um, 90% of the population is Muslim mm-hmm. um, with only 10% like Coptic Christian. Um, a lot of businesses run by Copts uh shut on Sunday, mm. which is the first day of the work week. Mm. Um, so Friday for us would be the holy day, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and it was different because, you know, we would have to plan our day around my husband going to the mosque for the like the big weekly prayer mm-hmm. around lunchtime. Sort of the equivalent of people who would plan their weekend about going to church on a Sunday morning, say. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's different. We would have to plan our time around that. Um, the other thing is the social scene. Like, people don't socialise much during the work, the week here. You know, like, people will catch up and go out for dinner maybe on the weekend. Yeah. Yeah, we would go out any night of the week. Mm. Any night of the week was normal. You'd go out for dinner. That's That's just a given. You know, I, I think you might just have the wrong kind of friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe I do. It, it's just here. And maybe it's just because of, you know, the age I am now. I've got a lot of friends who've got like kids and teenagers and stuff and they're oh, really sure. involved in, in their activities. But it's just people sort of hunk. I, I just seem to, it just feels like people hunker down during the week. Yeah. And then sort of do more on the weekend when they can. Yeah. Um, whereas for us... You know, we were out every night of the week. We would be out till quite late. The day in Egypt starts a little later. Like I always started work at like 8, 8.30. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's quite normal for people really not to get kick-started until 10 or 11. Mm. Um, also, the weather has a big role to play in that um, because obviously it gets very, very hot in the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, so people can't do things during the heat of the day. They choose not to. So this is why a lot of shops and um, malls and things like that, business is done in the later evening 
during the summer months because people it's a bit cooler and people can get out. Um, my husband, it's quite normal for him to go and have business meetings, anything from 11, 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. in the morning mm. during the hotter months, you know, um, because it's cooler. And he'll and business, you know, he goes, oh, I've got a business meeting. We're in the coffee shop. Mm. They'll have, you know, he'll ha- often have business meetings in um, in a coffee shop or a cafe. That's quite normal. I would often see my clients in a coffee shop or a cafe. Um yeah, and that scene is really big and I'd be out with friends and doing coffee and and having dinner and um, and uh, we would be working, you know. So the day is a very different structure for me mm. here. I'm enjoying having regular hours for a change and actually getting a weekend off. I'm mm-hmm. enjoying that. But I do find it very different. Yeah. Um, how do you get things done? Like if you've got to go and do appointments <laughs> in this country, how do you get things done? When you're working all day and things shut so early, it's it sort of, you've got to get time off work. Yeah, basically. That's that's the, the essential expectation. You take time off work. And that's weird to me, <laughs> you know, but then that's just because I've been fortunate. I was fortunate enough to have a job that, you know, I could say, okay, well, I'm taking a couple of hours now and I'll be, because I've got to work this evening, mm. you know, so I could do that. But it, it takes some adjusting and, uh, you know, and you get a little spoiled over there because... Um, which is it's it's my family find it quite amusing. I don't really understand it, but um, you know, like in Egypt, it's it's quite normal, and because it's affordable, like you can get household help. Mm, you yes. know, it's it's far more affordable over there. Mm. So you know, quite sort of proudly, I I admitted I hadn't done anything domestic for over twenty years, <laughs> <laughs> and um, since I've come back, you know, I. You know, I had to change the linen and um, do the washing and, and um, mop a floor. I was quite horrified. Um, it's it's taken some adjusting, I have to be honest. And I do and quite – I miss my housekeeper. But, um, but then again, when I say I miss my housekeeper because of what she used to do, that's part of it. But I also had the same housekeeper for 21 years. Right, And yes. she is also – she was a, is a part of my family. Yeah. Um, the people that you have working – like that, they become part of your family. Yeah. And uh, so I, you know, played a big role in her life and, and she played a big role in my life, not just for the fact that she cleaned my house, mm. but because we knew her. We knew her family. Um, and, uh, and that was normal over there. And I do miss that a lot. Yeah, again, cultural differences. It is. It is funny what what you just what you grow accustomed to and what 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 you learn to be acceptable. Uh, and it, you know, I think talking about before about um, when you're trying to teach nurses, uh, one of the so I, I work in GP education, so I train up GP registrars as well. And I, what I always try to teach them is come out from a place of curiosity. Don't just decide because I disagree, it must therefore be wrong. Mm. Ask, well, why? And what, why, why is it significant? And is it, and most importantly, is it necessary for me to hold on to this belief just because it's what I believe? Mm. Um, you know, so if, if your housekeeper was, that was what she expected of her job and that she felt she was treated well and she was happy, does it really matter that someone from a different culture doesn't think she should be happy. Like it matters. It should be more important that she was happy with her role. You were happy with her role in your life and obviously vice versa. And that's important. Um, yeah, it, it's important. I mean, um, 
I, I also saw people, you know, with their housekeepers that, okay, well, she's a housekeeper and that's her job. I don't care if she's happy. Yeah. Um, and that is part of, you know, Egypt is quite a class-oriented society. So if you've got somebody who can afford a housekeeper, mm. um, her role is a housekeeper. Mm. And um, that's her role. That's where she should stay. And I don't care if she's happy or not. I'm paying her. Mm. Um I can't do that. Yeah, fair <laughs> that's, enough. That's not me. Um, you know, my housekeeper probably wasn't the best housekeeper in the world, but she was the best housekeeper in the world for me. Mm. Um, you know, a couple of times, you know, my husband would say, oh, you know, the place is not so, you know, when I say it's not clean, like it might be a bit dusty or something because Cairo is a very dusty city. Sure. Um, and he's like, oh, it's a bit dusty. And I'm like, yeah, but... Um, you know, the fact is it might not be sort of – she might not have done the dusting this time, but the fact – it's more important to me the fact that she's honest mm. and she's not stealing from me. <laughs> yes. And And she's reliable and she, you know, she doesn't just take days off. Um, we – you know, and I paid her well and we looked after her. Mm. Um, but it was also important for us that she was happy and she was healthy and that, you know, and we saw it as – not so much our responsibility to help her family, but because she was a part of our family, we wanted to help her family. Mm. Um, and not everybody did. Not everybody treated their housekeepers, their household help the same way. And that's that's true of both Egyptians and um, expatriates as mm. well. You know, I've seen a lot of them just take them for granted and, and treat them really badly. Um, but, you know, when you live in a country like Egypt and it is a third world country and there is a lot of poverty and a lot of people are really struggling and one thing that hit home very early on um is that you can't help everybody mm. you know okay i work for a company and i you know i earn good money in that but i can't make a huge difference to a large number of people's lives so i had to sort of make a conscious effort that i can make a big difference to a small Sorry. So what I was trying to say, I can make a little difference to a large number of people. I can make a big difference and make a significant difference to a small, smaller number of people. Mm. Because if you start trying to help everybody, everybody just keeps piling on top of you. You know, they'll, they'll hear about it and they'll want things from you and, and it gets overwhelming and, um, and it's so stressful and it's really difficult to, to be in that situation. Um, and because I, 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 I tried to do that when I started, you know, and help a lot of people and I just couldn't do it. So, you know, I made a, a decision that I needed to help and make an impactful difference um, by, you know, for example, my housekeeper, Aisha, um, you know, like I, I helped her because I wanted to help her, not that, you know, I was thought I was it you know I should get all these kudos for doing it um but it was I wanted to to help her because she was important to me mm -hmm. and so you just can't you know I know when people travel to other countries you know I hear about if they travel to third world countries and they they want to give money to everybody and do all these things and it's just not sustainable mm. it, it really isn't it's 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 an ethical thing that you've really got to search within yourself to figure out what you want to do and how you want to help people and and that's how I chose to help people is you know 
choose a, a, a certain number of people or the people that I could help in a significant way and make a difference to them. Um, but each to their own. You know, people may have a different opinion about, you know, what you can do to help people in third world countries. Um, but that was how I decided to, to live my life over there and, and, and hopefully make a difference to, to a couple of people in a significant way. Um, but it, it is not e- easy, um, you know, living in a, in a country like that where, um, you know, they see that you have so much more. And the expectation is that because you have more, it's your, you know, you're obligated to help me. Let me give you an example. This is a really interesting story. I had a friend of mine who I worked with at the oil company and he was a, a bike rider. And he was out cycling. There was a Cairo cycle club. And he was out cycling and he got mugged. Mm. And... um there was uh, a guy who – there was two guys that mugged him and they took his phone and his money and knocked him off his bike and, and all the rest of it. Um, and he was fine. The, my friend was fine. He went home and he reported it to the police and the police investigated and they found the guy. Um, and the guy got thrown in jail. So then somehow the family of the guy found um, my friend's address, whether the police told him or – I don't know, but they found his address and they came to his house demanding that he give them money. In order to do what? Because it didn't it didn't seem to twig to them that their son had mugged him and stolen from him and knocked him off his bike and, you know, like cut him up a bit. They saw it that you've had our son put in jail. Right. So because he's now put in jail, he can't earn money and support us. So now you have to do it. Fascinating. That's the mentality. That's the mentality. And that's why I'm saying you can't help everybody, you know, because the expectation is if things like that happen, they'll just expect it from you. Mm. You know, so it's it's interesting. Mm. I guess... Just to sort of finish off the conversation, because although, although I'd, I'd love to hear more about Egyptian culture, because it's just I find it fascinating from as a almost an external observer, um, looking at the idea of job satisfaction. So you've obviously been through a number of careers. You talked about the ways in which you have, I guess, changed your perspective on what you want out of your job, how to achieve it, how to maintain sanity, and all that. What for you? What was the key thing for jobs to 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 achieve job satisfaction? Um. One of the things, for me, it's really important to go and when I'm at my job to be putting in like 110%. But for me to be able to do that on an ongoing basis, I have to be able to walk out of the door and put it behind me until the next day. Mm. Um, When I was working in Egypt and um, like I said, I was on call 24-7, you can never switch off. Like I had to take the phone with me everywhere Mm. like if I was walking from one end of the house to the other if I was going to the bathroom if I was stepping outside the phone had to be with me because I was on call and I had to be able to answer the phone so you could never switch off and not being able to switch off you can't sustain that for long periods of time you burn out Mm. and that was something my employers at the time really struggled to understand Um, and so because you can never switch off 
you you can't continue to work at that high standard all of the time. Mm. You just can't. It's physically and, and mentally impossible to do so. Um, so for me, I've got to be. A, I like to be in a job where when I'm there, I'm there. I'm switched on. I give everything I've got, but I, I need to be able to walk out of the door and switch off for a little while, so I can come back the next day and work to that same standard. That to me is really important. Mm. Um, the other thing is it's it's not all about the money. Mm-hmm. It's not. You know, the money's great. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yes. <laughs> the money's great. Yeah. Um, you know, but and, you know, I, I listen to a lot of people over the years and, you know, who were at those that point in their careers where they'd had the big money um, but they've just got really burnt out or they were working in a job where they felt that they weren't valued or they were taken advantage of and then they just got to that point where the money's not worth that anymore and then they made career you know decisions or decided to step away or make a a change in their career trajectory um and they were really happy and i was always like oh okay you know um and i did i got to that point where the money was great don't get me wrong and i was doing brilliantly Mm. and um but the environment in which I was working was not worth it. Mm. Um, you've got to, it's nice to be valued. It's really nice. Um, like I'm not saying it's the most important part of, or the reason why I do it, but it is nice on occasion to be told, you're doing a good job. You know, you're making a difference. Mm. You know, it's not absolutely necessary but it's nice to hear it on occasion um and you've got to so for me it got to the point where the money wasn't worth it Mm. um being treated poorly you know just thought it's not worth it this is a great job loved the job loved what i used to do but i didn't like the environment in which i was doing it Mm. So it was, I got to a point where it was, you know, by mutual agreement, it was time to step away. So then I did. So then I started up my own company. And, uh, and that was what I spent sort of the last year and a half in Cairo doing, setting up my own company and uh, getting it off the ground over there before I came back here. And, uh, you know, setting up, <laughs> setting up your own company is expensive and, oh, yes. you know, and it takes a while. But. The satisfaction of doing it and, um, and, and um, you know, picking up business and, and starting to become successful is, you know, rewarding. And doing it that it was mine was also a real sense of accomplishment because, again, I don't have any business qualifications. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I have no business degree. Yeah. Um, but, you know, through talking to people. And that's another big thing that I found um, going through and spending time overseas and, and doing lots of things, you know, because sort of in the middle of that, I decided whilst I was working 24-7 to go back to school and get my master's as well. Um, and by the way, 
university um, recruiters are not honest when they tell you how many hours a week it's going to take you to do your masters. Um, liar, liar, pants on fire, recruiter from University of Liverpool. Um, yeah, so they told me 12 hours a week while they lied. So, um, you know, in amongst all that, when I did all that, one thing I realised is, you know, whatever you do, you know, um, it's never a one-person job. You know, you the support you get from other people, be it professional or personal, you know, support mm. um, is a must and you've got to learn. And this was a big thing for me was learning how to ask for help when I didn't know mm. something, you know. And this is even more so when I was studying because um, going back as a mature age student where I was in a classroom um, to when I went back as a mature age student, to do online learning, which is really tough, mm-hmm. um, and having to organise my time and and um, whilst doing you know other jobs uh, is a real is a real skill, and it was a really tough thing to be able to do to go back and um, you know get all the work done whilst working, mm. um, uh, whilst being employed, getting all the study done. It was it was really really tough. And you can't do things like that alone. And learning how to ask for help, whether it be asking your husband to cook dinner because you just can't do it or getting someone to help you because you've got a stats class and you just don't understand. Mm. You know, I haven't done statistics in like 30 years and and suddenly you've been confronted with a stats class. Um, Or setting up your own business. You know, it's it's it was not an easy pill to swallow for me who's always been fiercely independent, to actually ask for help. Mm. And that was a really tough thing. But you know what? When you ask, people help. People do. And that was a really big lesson for me, setting up my own business to learn. Mm. All right. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation and there is there are so many more questions to ask, but we'll probably have to leave it there. Um, so thanks for coming on, Justine. Thank uh, you for having me. All right. So uh, to all you listeners out there, thanks for sticking around. Uh, make sure you check out our various socials, Twitter, Facebook, and uh, Instagram. Uh, and uh, have a look at the website and check out the reflections, www.nosmalljobspod.com.au. Uh, having my thoughts about uh, the discussion and what what kind of uh, what uh, kind of feelings is brought up with me. So uh, thanks for listening, and remember, there are no small jobs, only jobs you haven't discovered yet.